0: The job. The stress. Uh,
1: it's 10, 4, kilo 23, we are, there is an active shooter working at Douglas. Multiple gunshots are being fired. Politics. Politics pressure. Get out here, we got a
0: guy with a long rifle. we don't know where the hell he's at. Fear,
1: Fear. Survival. Control 765, I need the radio for a minute. Be advised, we are taking fire from a very high floor. We believe it's possibly coming from the Mandalay Bay. And we get it and we have
0: to do better. The truth behind the badge presented by the Team South Florida Law Enforcement Charity.
1: Good evening. This is Rich with Team South Florida. We have another podcast episode tonight, and I am joined. I'm really, really excited with tonight's guest. This is Nick Wilson from the Resiliency Project. Nick, thank you so much for joining me tonight.
0: Thanks for having me, Rich, and it's great to be on with you. I'm very excited about it.
1: Yeah, really taken back at some current events and just the times and everything that we've got going on. And uh, our organization, we really love what you guys do. So real quick, for those that are listening, why don't you fill us in? Who is Nick Wilson and what is the Resiliency Project?
0: Thanks, Rich. Uh, My name is Nick Wilson, and I'm a retired police officer here in California. And I was a police officer for 13 years and had a great career. And uh, unfortunately, I was injured uh, in the line of duty, and I uh, had to medically retire at the end of 2017. But beyond the physical injuries, there were also injuries that were uh, psychological. The Post-traumatic stress and the impacts of trauma was something that I had to learn to navigate through after years of stuff in it. And as a result of not dealing with the things that I was experiencing, I started to deal with chemical dependency as a result of years of maladaptive coping and high-risk behavior. And that led to my eventual downfall in my personal life. And in 2016, I received a DUI after drinking at night. And uh, I had to get into my car to go get a new phone. And I crashed into a fence. And it was single-handedly the most humiliating and embarrassing and shameful thing that I've ever experienced and it came with it a tremendous amount of guilt and I realized that that was the end result of what happens when fear of stigma dictates my life and I went in and I sought treatment and I started my healing journey four years ago when this happened and since then my wife left and uh, this has been the rebuilding phase for me I started a nonprofit called the Resiliency Project, and the Resiliency Project aims at supporting first responder mental health. We raise money to redistribute to first responders seeking psychological services and or treatment and recovery services. And our end result is to, our, our goal is to build a first of its kind treatment center, a campus that is a multifaceted campus that has multiple treatment modalities that have been clinically proven to treat first responders. And they'll be able to go there for both chemical dependency rehab and also trauma retreat for a week. And they'll be able to go there free of charge, and it'll be a confidential place that they can start their healing journey. And our our whole goal is to prevent the silent suffering of our first responders and and suicide. And I'm very grateful to be on uh, your your podcast because I
1: also think
0: that what you're doing is absolutely extraordinary. And so I'm, 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 I'm very thankful to be here.
1: Well, I love it. And I love, it. I love what you said. I'm happy to have you here. Uh, just to reiterate, I saw right from your website, it says it was formed, the resiliency project was formed to end the silent suffering of our nation's first responders by providing peer support and funding for treatment, recovery, and psychological services in an effort to treat post-traumatic stress, build resilience and end suicide. I love the part where you said to end the silent suffering and you know you touched on what we do it's funny with team south florida we really for years were not in the mental health arena it was early 2018 when we started to just i don't know we just woke up and we said something's got to change and we don't know if we can help but let's put ourselves out there and let's see what happens and sure enough, we started getting phone calls and we started getting people reaching out for help. And it's amazing to me because I think about what you say about the silent suffering. I think about what you say about having a successful career. And we spoke previously to going on the air about different positions and assignments you had. And these are like just real type A alpha personalities, get the job done, squared away, It's amazing to me that you just sometimes you don't know what somebody's got going on. You just don't know.
0: Yeah, you know, I often when I you know, I'm very fortunate that at this point in my life I'm able to share my story at different agencies and also at the academy. And one of the first things I talk about in introducing myself are the assignments that I held and what I was able to accomplish in my career. And I do so not to glorify anything that I ever did, but to really demonstrate how someone working in a, uh, as a narcotic detective or on the SWAT team as a field training officer, and to be able to do the kinds of things that I was able to do in, in my career. You typically think of people like that as being very squared away, as someone who's got it really together. I thought that I did have it together. And when you spend your whole career believing that you are invulnerable to the impacts of trauma because of what is indoctrinated in you at the academy level, it is an illusion. The invulnerability is an illusion. And when that illusion is shattered because untreated trauma permeates into your life, it can create a very dangerous situation in terms of your mental health. And it's not just something that i went through there are thousands of police officers out there every single day experiencing especially now and what's going on in our society both with the lack of support from the public and or the defund movement as well as covid and the forced policies from you know various you know states depending on what state you're in but having to isolate and the isolation factor alone also causes officers to slip back into old patterns of behavior. So there's a lot of different things in terms of how we approach the mental health topic and how the conversation moves forward. But I think a lot of it has to do with leadership.
1: I couldn't agree more. And you hit on several topics. I want to kind of break them down individually just to throw some numbers out here, just so we can, it's nothing that you and I don't know, but it, You know, our our memorial shirts from this past year, they have the number 228 on the front. And Mm -hmm. people frequently say, well, who is that? Is that a badge number? And we tell them, well, the memorial shirts, the back of them are fallen Florida law enforcement officers who were killed in the line of duty. But the front, we just could not believe that 228 law enforcement officers took their own (sighs) lives in 2019. So we, we wanted to pay homage to that. So we put that number on the front that's up from 2018, which was 174. That's up from 2017, which was 172. And I think an important, you know, we speak with Blue Help frequently, and that's where we get our statistics from. An important caveat that they mention is that these are only the confirmed numbers that we know about. Would you agree? I I think that these numbers Uh are probably higher. They are higher.
0: And and I'm thankful for Blue Help and that we have an organization out there who is, is collecting the statistical data in order to demonstrate uh, or, or illustrate what's going on from only what is being reported. Right. Um, before I touch on that, I'm glad to hear how you guys are focusing. It's not how you intended, but you are now focusing a lot more on mental health. Uh, and what's going on based on that, those numbers. And, and that's really important, I think, when, when we're trying to push the mental health um, initiatives forward and we're trying to create a community of understanding amongst the law enforcement community. And the fact that you guys are doing that is something to be commended. In my opinion, uh, from where I sit, with our team of peer supporters that we have in place and providing the peer support that we do 24 hours a day, the officers that are calling in are experiencing uh, unimaginable levels uh, of trauma. And there have been several conversations that I've had, uh, not just with other founders of other nonprofit organizations or, or, or first responder companies or departments, but family members and spouses of those who have lost their loved ones t- to suicide. and And they were not some of them were not, their death was uh, listed as, a, uh, as something else. Like a, it was like an accident or an overdose or a, something medical. And that component is a, a, a horrifying thing. If you think about how they list someone's death, the, the cause of their death, so I am, it, it, it's alarming. And I think that Blue Help recently uh, just was able to determine that their numbers were inaccurate because of the lack of reporting that was coming forward. So when you think about that and uh, the totality of that, that, that is very scary.
1: Well, what's scary to me is that, and you and I talked about this today, we found out that today we hit number 100.
0: 100. We're
1: only, we're only in July. We're not even done with July yet. And we're at 100 suicides. And if you compare that to the, and I hate to even say line of duty deaths, because I think a lot of these suicides are a result of the trauma that-
0: Absolutely they are.
1: ...from law enforcement experience. We've had, according to Officer Down Memorial page, 140 (laughs) line of duty deaths, quote unquote. Nearly 70 of those is from COVID-19. Right. So if you take out the 70 COVID-19-
0: Mm -hmm.
1: we've got a a significant problem. We've got 30 more suicides than we do officers being killed by somebody else or a crash or things of that nature. I mean, that's a problem. That's crazy.
0: It's a crisis is what it is, is. uh, in my opinion. And, you know, when when you see that the last four years, more officers are dying by suicide by their own hands than in the line of duty, Um, I'm not sure why mental health and law enforcement has not become the number one initiative and the top priority of every agency moving forward. I do believe that the, that the tides are, are changing. I think that, that, that things are starting to turn around now. And, and, and I've spoken to quite a few law enforcement um, leaders and command staff, various agencies who are very supportive of the mental health initiative moving forward, but we are so far behind. And unfortunately, 228 officers last year um and 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 in the last four years. The, the real question is, you know, every time, you know, I, I'm sure you remember there was a time where it was traffic collisions. Uh that was the and so what what, what did we do in response to that? We um we we created policies and seatbelt policies and cell phone policies, and we we uh spent tons of money with
1: advertising a, a, and advertising the whole thing yep. right
0: yep well the last four years it's been the same thing and i think we're seeing it now with increase in frequency and i, and I think that the response uh, needs to change in that we need to make mental health a number one priority but do so also in a way that is preventative in nature and we start early and be the, the start of their careers should really be from the academy level through their field training program and yearly throughout, you know, every year throughout their careers, there should be mental health training and protocols in place in order to really support each and every one of our law enforcement
1: officers. I agree. Let's put that theory to the test. We talk about Different levels of buy-in, and both you and I have had different experience with leadership from different agencies. Have you noticed from the leaders or command staff of agencies where they really do believe in what you're saying and they get behind it and they support the troops? Do you see a difference in the officers in the interactions, maybe in the morale, maybe in performance versus the opposite?
0: Absolutely, I do. Absolutely, I do. I think that you know, right now, uh, I'm I'm speaking with uh, different. Agencies, because everyone's kind of looking to share ideas on how they can improve their their policies, their protocols, and their position when it comes to mental health at their agencies. And in response to what you're asking, I can say that from the agencies that I have seen or spoken with, when I have seen attention placed on mental health, and they change the environment at their agencies that is much more supportive and understanding, you know, mental health things. I have seen a shift in the culture at the agency. I've seen officers who, when they feel supported rather than unsupported and or feeling organizational betrayal or perceived organizational betrayal, I see a difference in performance. I see a difference in their attitudes. I, I see, Um, a positive response to leadership at their agencies, which makes me think that if this is something that is pushed forward collectively and becomes the new trend in the country, I think that we'll see a huge shift in the way that we hire, recruit, train, retain officers. I think that it would have ripple effects with their interactions with the public and citizen contacts.
1: Well, that's a big big thing right there because we constantly hear about the climate that we're in and everybody's concerned. Well, it's a domino effect. If you have healthier, happier, supported officers, which you just started to say, the interactions are going to be better.
0: That's exactly right. Imagine the long-term effects of having 100% of an agency's priorities placed on the mental health of their officers rather than responding to what I believe is a false narrative in this country of institutional racism in law enforcement. When you really break down the facts and the statistics, let's just get real here for a minute, okay? Our country has absolutely phenomenal professional and incredible law enforcement officers that serve their communities. Imagine what the long-term ripple effects would be when they feel supported rather than unsupported. And they are working in an environment where they don't have to fear going to a fitness for duty once the impacts of trauma have started to permeate into their lives. Imagine those long-term ripple effects with them feeling like they can get help. They do get help. They start to get better. They can sleep more. They are more rested. They are... Their relationships at home are better because there's a difference in their ability to communicate that is not hindered by isolation and or untreated trauma. Yeah,
1: and you just brought and up another point. Your whole personal life changes too. That's a whole, whole separate topic to this whole thing. Yeah, you're right. Right.
0: And and what happens is, is if we can start to see a difference and a change in the culture then officers don't feel like they have to suffer in silence. They can understand that their families and their friends and their social structures um, play a huge role in how they navigate their way through trauma. But my point in a broader context is this. I think that mental health in law enforcement should be the number one priority, but it also serves a much broader context and idea that more support, for an officer over time by changing the culture will equate to better job performance, better hiring, better retention, less workers' comp filings, and we'll see a difference in the longevity of an officer and beyond their retirement, beyond just living past retirement in a way that they're, we're not seeing death by you know, heart attack or some sort of cardiac problem. We're seeing longevity in an officer much, much longer than, you know, 55 and 60 years old, less citizen complaints, less lawsuits. I
1: would like to see us get there. Now, the the other side of the spectrum is, and the excuses that come up, and I'm just going to put it to rest real quick because I don't buy it, is you hear a lot of people say, well, the stigma and leadership and back in the day and all that. I got to be honest, we had a horrific, horrific incident happen two years ago, and there's a police chief of 20 plus years that took it upon herself to fly down to Florida to meet with members of our organization, just to check in on us and make sure we were good. So, and I'm sure you've got, without naming them, I'm sure you've got specific police chiefs and members of command staff and sheriffs and directors that have a wealth of experience, but they buy into it. So I don't like that or I don't like that argument about this uh maybe we blame the leadership for not knowing or anything because I think you just quite frankly have to wake up and I think you to quote Travis Yates's mm. book the uh the courageous police leader I mean I think that's what's lacking I think we have some police leaders that have courage and some that do not quite frankly
0: I agree with you 100% and um I believe that I mean, if you're going to be a police chief or you're going to be an administrator of a law enforcement agency, you know, the buck stops with you. And at the end of the day, you have to know, just as I've seen, they all know what the current challenges that law enforcement is facing today. I mean, we're asking our recruits to answer those questions in the academy. Our police chiefs know the answer and they should be able to respond appropriately by having the intestinal fortitude to be able to do what's right. It is our moral obligation our moral obligation to be able to protect our officers from the impacts of trauma by providing an environment that allows them to be able to get help without fear of repercussion and or retaliation i believe you know I'm, i've spoken with the chino police chief i've spoken with uh, CCPOA uh, here in california which is the union for correctional officers i've sp- spoken with you know various agencies. And yesterday I spoke with a captain at uh, another agency. These people do want change and they are working diligently to provide officers with the kind of support that they need and to create an environment with the right resources to be able to get help. And so I think that we're currently in a, a at least in California, there there's a lot of change occurring now. California Post, the peace officers standards and training just developed a wellness collaborative, and there's a lot of changes occurring, but I also see and hear from a lot of officers that are calling in what's going on at their agencies? I just heard one the other day that said uh, their chief said that if any of the officers need to go to rehab, they'll be terminated. These are not
1: the kinds of how can you even say that that's wow it's
0: wow it's unbelievable
1: <laughs> you know so. That's an officer that recognizes perhaps they, they might have a problem, and if they wanted to address the problem, well, there goes any attempt at addressing the problem, because now their problem is going to amplify when they don't have a job.
0: That's exactly right. And what kind of environment does that allow the officer? You think about what's going on here. Historically, there's been no tougher job than being a law enforcement officer, of which you're not just a law enforcement officer. You're a counselor. You're a teacher. You're you know, a parent. You're trying to fix societal's uh, shortcomings within the five to ten minutes of a jo- of, of a call that you 're responding to, and you can 't and it 's an impossible conundrum so it 's inherently dangerous and difficult now we 're seeing an entire nation and wrath of a society that 's pushing an agenda and a narrative that is deteriorating law enforcement mental health and when you throw in the defund movement and the lack of Support that they're going to be getting as a result of that. It's shameful what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we're not seeing the kind of leadership in the kind of instances that I'm talking about where it counts and matters now. And I wish that we saw some more. I'm, I, the, of the people I'm mentioning and some others, I, I'm, I'm inspired and to see some of the leaders that are, are putting their foot down now. But by and large, I think that as a law enforcement agency, like what we're seeing in Seattle and Portland, we're seeing in DC. I mean, leadership counts now. They go to FBI uh, National Academy and they go to the, you know, all these leadership institutes. Uh, It's time to start demonstrating the leadership that they learn because your
1: officers need it. Well, what I've seen, I would say, and you don't often use the statistic, but I would say 100% of the time with this whole movement, when You give an inch, you lose a mile. When you put your foot down, you back the officers, you allow them to do their job. The problem seems to either go away or be minimal in nature when you contrast the opposite effect. You give people a block and they take several blocks. You give people a building and they destroy the building next to it and on top. I mean, it's It's like leadership starts now. It has to. This is the time. It has
0: to start now. It's like, you know, appeasement makes the aggressor more aggressive right when an, when an officer has to back down and you are removing their capacity to operate within the authority that has been entrusted upon them because of a political agenda it's absolutely place a psychological a psychological effect on the officer in that they feel a sense of organizational betrayal and if it's if if we don't if we can't stick together as, as, you know, within law enforcement community, and we, and we are pander to political agendas without at least giving it a fight where your officers can see you're attempting to do your best in a leadership capacity. When an officer feels like they're being, uh, the loyalty has shifted unnecessarily. It does play a huge psychological effect on an officer's psyche. I'm seeing it with the calls that we're getting every day.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you with with our organization and it's probably similar for you guys cuz well, I shouldn't assume, but I'm going to make an assumption just because the calls that we're getting are not so much from Florida. We we're getting some from the northeast, we're getting some from the midwest. We had a couple from Nevada and I I assume that's only because of my ties to Nevada. We haven't had any from California. Maybe that's cuz you guys are out there and they know about you. But uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you it's consistently and i hate to bash on leadership i don't want to bash on leadership i'd rather do the opposite i would rather praise the good ones if you're if you're a police chief listening to this or you're a member of command staff listening to this nick correct me if i'm wrong from our perspective the common theme consistently from what is causing the most stress is a lack of support from the top
0: 100% what well, hands down 100% and I think it's really important because I know that, you know, law enforcement leaders they want to do the right thing. We have to think and put ourselves, you know, <clears throat> in in the shoes of a police chief who has to answer to a city manager or a mayor and they have to answer to uh, a city council while also trying to display leadership at their agencies. And I understand that there's a balance and I understand that there's more than one thing that must be considered when trying to evaluate a command staff's response to what is going on in today's society. But having said that, at the end of the day, you're a cop and you're responsible for your officers, your troops. We're asking our officers to deal with the kinds of things that they have to deal with in our society at great risk to their own personal safety and to experience and see things that will burn in their memory for the rest of their lives. And if we're going to ask them to do those things, we have to keep in mind that if we do not show 100% support and demonstrate that through policies and in a public way, organizational betrayal or even perceived organizational betrayal makes the job so much more difficult when they feel unsupported. These are the calls that I hear the common theme in every one of them is we've been abandoned we've been abandoned and when i went to a trauma retreat uh wcpr when we were supposed to list all of the critical incidents that we've been involved in one of them that each of the people that went there listed organizational betrayal even if it is perceived you see i worked at an agency there was a really good agency and at the time i felt like i may not have been supported but I'm grateful to have worked at my agency and I'm grateful to have worked with the amazing people that I worked with. But sometimes I think law enforcement leadership forgets where they came from and what it felt like to be a line level officer. And I think that they might not realize how much of an impact it would have to have a chief walk into a briefing and just say, What's up, guys? and be able to hang out with their troops and say, Hey, I know you guys are going through a lot and I understand what you're having to face out there, but just know that you're supported here and whatever you need, I will make sure that I get you. We don't see a lot of the kinds of leadership, you know, true servant leadership as much as we really should. And like you're saying, you know, not, they're, they're, this is the time now. And I agree with you hundred percent that organizational betrayal or perceived, organizational betrayal is a very dangerous thing for an officer to experience because there's supposed to be this thing called the thin blue line and that is representative of so many things but law enforcement is a family and law enforcement represents a notion at the end of the day of good and evil the badge is something that officers swear to use and wear that that badge as a token of public faith They're that's a heavy badge to wear and there's a burden that comes with it. And I think that we can't keep asking our officers to be almost perfect. Well, that's
1: that's exactly what's being asked right now is we have an officer respond to an incident and they are critiqued by people that have never done the job before. And then the added stress comes from and here's actually, I could actually tell you this was a call we received. The added stress for the officer was the agency remained silent. Not that, uh, not that they criticized the officer, but that they didn't stand up for the officer. Sure. And this comes back to, sure, it'd be nice to go into a briefing room, maybe roll around, you know, ride a patrol car for a shift or something. But to me personally, and I think many, talk is cheap. Action speaks louder than words. And I, I've had this conversation with certain leaders in agencies, and I've brought it to their attention. And I'm actually pleased to say that the advice was taken well, and there was a subsequent incident, and it was handled better than the first one. But uh, when, when you talk about leadership and leading, um, staying silent. Staying... <clears throat> that's,
0: that's the thing. You brought up that point you're making is an exceptional point. Sometimes we evaluate things based on what we do, we evaluate. Risk based on what our response or actions are. And we very rarely assess what the risk of not doing something is. It is almost equivalent, or sometimes in this particular instance that you're citing, more important. When we say we stay silent, or we don't publicly protect the officer, we don't stand up for the department as a whole. We don't stand up for the kind of rhetoric that we're hearing. These stay with the officers at the end of the day. They want leadership. They're begging for it. They they want to work. They, you know, officers they, they put up with so much. You know, and, and they'll do it. They'll continue working selflessly, sacrificing because they love the job at the end of the day, but they're looking for that leadership that they can feel proud about and they They're looking for the kind of leadership that makes them feel safe, that they're gonna be able to go to work and that they have the support of the command staff. And that if they need the kind of support because the job is unthinkable in its levels of stress, they want an environment that they can feel safe and comfortable coming forward for help. And unfortunately, we're dealing with a society that is looking for a group of angels to be absolutely perfect when they are imperfect themselves. And it's so unrealistic. And my heart goes out for our law enforcement officers in this country who every single day are sacrificing while their families stay at home and their spouses are worried sick about them and they're coming home and they're exhausted and they are stressed and their children see it. They feel it energetically, it's just not conducive to long term happiness in a household, and so we have to do more to change the environment and the reality for every single one of our officers who deserve a better life
1: I agree uh, wholeheartedly just want to take a quick minute. something that you, you touched on just now i don 't want to overlook it. You said comfortable coming forward, just an observation that i 've made that i 've had that i 've had other people share and i 'm curious to hear what you have to say. The biggest issue for us to come forward seems to be trust. Uh To a police leader who maybe recognizes that they can do more in their agency, advice that I would give would be what I've seen fail in certain agencies is a lack of trust because of who's on a team, so to speak. You, you create a team, you make people go to these public briefings, who's in the audience, maybe command staff is in the, a debriefing or a diffusing or something like that. Where I've seen the opposite take place, which has been successful, is I've seen teams that have no member of command staff present, only the people involved in an incident present, and the people on the team accessible by phone so the officer doesn't need to Reach out publicly or in a public setting, or even at the police department. Any, any thoughts on that just you know quickly?
0: I think that you're bringing up absolutely extraordinary points, and I agree with you one hundred percent. Trust has everything to do with trust and safety have everything to do with being able to catch an officer and, and, and helping that officer deal with trauma. I believe that after every critical incident, they should have a critical incident debriefing with those that were involved. I think that it should be peer-driven and clinically led. I believe that it should be followed up with peer support. I believe the peer support teams should be picked based on the virtue of the person and not what their uh, clout is within the agency based on popularity. I believe that there should be policies that are very strict in ensuring confidentiality with peer support. I believe that Um, revamping health and wellness units needs to be at the forefront of things. I believe that allowing an officer to, uh, aside from just internal peer support, sometimes officers don't feel comfortable going for, if they even have peer support, uh, because of who's on the team. Provide other options. That's why we exist. And I know that you guys are absolutely helpful with officers. that call in and and to you guys, Uh, whoever it is, provide a list of uh, organizations out there that do provide the kind of support they need.
1: What do you say to the police department or the personnel from the police department that when you say, because I agree with you, you have a critical incident, there should be a team that comes over and does a debriefing. What do you say to the argument of, well, we're short-staffed or our call volume is so high and we just can't do that? Find
0: a way to do it. That's not a reasonable uh, that's a, that's a, that basically says to me, I'm, I don't care enough about my officers because w- w- what happens when, um, what happens when there's a critical incident and, or there's a last minute rally or what are they doing? They're calling their officers in and they are making sure that overtime is uh, approved and they're bringing everybody in last minute for the public. Why aren't we doing the same thing for our own troops? internally our own organization you know invest in your officers and when you do you'll get better outcomes but that to me is an epic example of absentee leadership and we can't afford absentee leadership in this country any longer
1: yeah i noticed something with the fire department this is something that the fire department tends to universally do far better than law enforcement and it's not uncommon for a critical incident to take place for everybody at the station to basically be pulled off the road, participate in a debriefing on the other station's cover. So that's just one of the excuses, if you will, that I've heard before from the law enforcement side. And I agree with you. You just have to find a way.
0: You have to, because at the end of the day, what, what is more important than their mental health? Society will not benefit from sick police officers serving their communities.
1: I just want to cover this just because it illustrates an important point to me. Unfortunately, yesterday, the Chicago Police Department lost Deputy Chief Dion Boyd. Now, for those that don't know, Dion Boyd was promoted to member of command staff to Deputy Chief, which is a significant, significant accomplishment within an agency, especially a large agency like the Chicago Police Department. He was 57 years of age. He was a 30-year veteran of the force. He worked in homicide, he worked in undercover narcotics. It was suicide that that claimed his life. I don't really have an answer. I just just another observation that I'm making is that you don't have to be a 2 or 3-year officer responding to some gruesome incident. You know, here we have a member of command staff. I, I basically your your thoughts on this.
0: It's a tragedy and I think that we don't realize at times that those who have excelled in the type a personality peer-driven environment such as law enforcement where stigma is a real thing sometimes we think that those that are in positions of uh that are successful are okay and many times they're not dr john violanti discusses this and that's someone that i refer to a lot in my research And one of the things that he says is that critical incidents increase psychological crisis which violate and contradict the beliefs that they have about the world and their place within it. And exposure to critical incidents may challenge the evaluation of one's competency, contribute to self-doubt, or shatter their assumption regarding the world. And I think that it doesn't matter who you are from line level to chief. All of us are vulnerable to the impacts of trauma and we must do more to support mental health in law enforcement. I think that anyone is vulnerable to it and untreated trauma that lasts for years changes and rewires the way that we see the world and the way we respond to new traumas, new traumas. And it makes and exasperates new traumas even far greater than we would have experienced them without untreated trauma. And so I hope that more leadership around the country and more people like yourselves who are talking about it, who have the intestinal fortitude to make this a national conversation because of the crisis and epidemic that we're experiencing. And I commend you and I commend all those that continue the conversation because it's, it takes a village to do this. And I am very grateful for what you guys are doing and consider you guys friends and allies on an endeavor that's going to probably take the rest of our lives to be able to even see the kind of change that we're looking for.
1: Well, I couldn't agree more, and I'd return it right back to you. We are definitely going to have to do another podcast because I feel like we can go for (laughs) this. Um, I appreciate what you just touched on because I think it's critically important to support each other. And I think, you know, with the social media platforms, we frequently share a lot of the stuff you put out. You share a lot of the stuff we put out. I just want to make it a, a, a point. I mean, it's, it's so beneficial when we're all on the same team and support each other. Absolutely. So much more that way.
0: I think so. I agree. And, um, and that's what I'm about is, you know, creating a community of understanding with like-minded people who are passionate about the same thing and want to see change for the greater good of our law enforcement community. And those with the intestinal fortitude to enter this arena, I am very grateful for, and I admire uh, what you guys do. We're not in it for the likes, yeah, anyway. we're not in it for the followers, we're in it to get the kind of exposure and information out there to effectuate change.
1: That's it. All right, so advice for an officer, maybe just starting out the profession, maybe a couple of years on, and then advice for a veteran officer that maybe got 10 or 15, 20 years on.
0: Advice for Focusing a newer... on mental
1: health, I should say.
0: Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> for, for, for new officers, I would the advice I would give them is to find a good, healthy work-life balance to maintain social structures outside of the law enforcement community, outside of just your partners at work, to find hobbies that you're passionate about and not make the job and the badge your identity. And I would also encourage them Um, To remain engaged in their social structures and to realize that it is okay to not be okay and that asking for help is a sign of strength and not weakness. Um, And for those who have been on for a while, um, from 10 to 20 years, um, in terms of mental health, I would say that number one, uh, remember that you came into the profession at a different time era. You came in when. Um, it was not okay to ask for help, and that it was something that was shunned upon, but society has evolved and it 's changing and um, remember that, like the same advice I'd give to a new one that it 's okay to not be okay. Remember how much you have been able to survive in your career. remember how what you 've been able, able to overcome and survive and use that I put that at the forefront of your will to live and 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 I would also say that as those that are entering the retirement age, um, you're going to struggle because the job is something typically, I'm not saying everybody, but you know, when you retire, you lose a sense of purpose. And one of the common themes that we deal with is now that they've retired, uh, they don't have purpose anymore. And so to really prepare for retirement and make the preparation of retirement, um, at the forefront of everything that you do so that you can plan for these, um, these things and have contingency plans for when you're dealing with the depression and the anxiety. And there's a lot of resources out there. And, uh, there's a lot of organizations out there that are willing to help and provide the kind of support that, that is needed. Um, and you guys are one and the, you know, the resiliency project stands, uh, as a 24 hour, seven day a week organization and they can reach out to us at any point should they feel that they need support.
1: What's the easiest way for somebody to contact you guys? What's the website or social media? They,
0: yeah, they can go to uh, www.theresiliencyproject.info and they can push, su- they can request support uh, through there. And we have peer supporters through the entire country that can take their calls and depending on the situation, uh, we can help provide the kind of resources that officers need, whether it is to try to get them neurofeedback, a clinically and culturally competent clinician that deals specifically with first responders. Oh, wow. And we can also provide them, yeah, with other things as well. Uh, and so it's just a, a case-by-case basis, and we try to assess what it is that they need and provide them with those tools. And we've been able to successfully get people and to get neurofeedback, EMDR, uh, and other clinicians.
1: That's great. I, I love what you guys are doing. We could do a whole episode on clinicians because that's a whole other. topic. Oh,
0: that is definitely a whole nother topic. All right.
1: I definitely, <laughs> I definitely appreciate you joining us, taking the time out. I know you're super, super busy and, uh, we'll definitely do this again soon. Okay.
0: Thank you very much, Rich. And I appreciate everything that you guys are doing. So thank you. We're very grateful.
1: Thank you. All right, so in our traditional closing, what we do is we make sure we honor our fallen and we make sure we mean it when we say we will never forget. So it is July 29th, and going back to July 29th of 1990, formerly the Pompano Beach Police Department and now the Broward County Sheriff's Office, uh, Patrolman Scott Winters was tragically killed in the line of duty. Patrolman Winters was shot and killed during a struggle with a violent suspect in Pompano Beach. Officer Winters and his canine partner were assisting, searching for a suspect who was wanted for beating and raping a young girl. Yeah, these are the calls that officers go to. They put themselves in between the good and the evil. When Officer Winters located the suspect, a violent struggle ensued, and the suspect was tragically able to get a hold of Officer Winters' service weapon and shoot him twice below his vest. Officer Winters succumbed to his injuries, and the suspect was apprehended and sentenced to death. Officer Winters was survived by his wife and mother, and he had three years on the job, and he was just 28 years young. May he and his family never be forgotten.